now. Uh, Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. We are going to hear this morning about the deeds that followed the life of, of Bonhoeffer and uh, learn from them. And, and his rest from those labors is, is done, and ours are still here. Well, we enter into a time in which uh, Bonhoeffer experienced a, um, a moral dilemma. And I think maybe you felt it a little bit last week. Moral dilemma. Um, maybe you've had in a history class in college or, or high school the, the, the question posed to you, if you were living back in the 1700s, um, would you have picked up arms or guns or swords against King George III in the Revolution? Usually a question like that is meant to spark controversy in a class because it's kind of a, a moral dilemma. At least it was for many of our forefathers. Well, should I take up arms as a Christian against King George that the Lord in some sense has placed over us? Now, in answer to that question, looking back at it for almost two and a half centuries, we might simply say, yes, of course I would have done that. I would have fought with George Washington. But you know, when you're in the middle of something, it's a lot harder to see things as clearly as we may see them in hindsight. And we're in a place in, in Bonhoeffer's life where um, there was a, 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 a dilemma. As a Christian living in Nazi Germany, um, Christians had to, had, to, had to make choices, very difficult choices, that from hindsight, it may look like the, the choices were simple, but they, but they weren't. Uh, in 1939, he's an adult, obviously, on May 22nd, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, was drafted into the Nazi army. That is, he received papers and conscripting him to come fight for the Nazis. Now, what do you do as a Christian when you are asked to fight for something that you violently oppose? To make matters worse, if once you're conscripted into the army, you would be required to swear this oath. I swear... By God, this sacred oath, why Hitler wanted by God in there, I don't know. Um, maybe to um, assuage the German Lutherans, I don't know, because he didn't believe in God. Um, that I will render unconditional obedience to Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer of, German, of the German Reich and people, supreme commander of the armed forces, and will be ready as a brave soldier to risk my life at any time for this oath. It'd be hard for a Christian to swear that oath. Unconditional obedience, right? There's only one that we swear unconditional obedience to, and that's Christ. That would be a difficulty for us as Christians. Yet, if you decided, hey, you know what, I'm just going to opt out. You wouldn't just go to prison. You would be executed. The testimony of one such person who lived in, in um, contemporary time to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote, it was clearly the case that whoever refused the draft in the case of war would be beheaded, uh, would be executed. And here you sense the difficulty in the decision. Was this the point at which we should give up our lives and thereby also our care of our family and everything which was important to us? And being a contemporary and a friend of Bonhoeffer, he says, I, I, I know that Bonhoeffer himself was sad that he had supported a man who completely refused the draft and then was executed. It, it, it was a very strange situation in which we all stood. I didn't put myself in that situation. If I say no, then I get killed. And if I get killed, I mean, who's going to take care of my wife and kids? That's, that's a very real um, conflict. Uh, 
a dilemma in which he and a lot of German Christians found themselves, a moral dilemma. What would you do in that situation if you were there? Like I said, hindsight, looking back over five, six decades, maybe the answer is crystal clear to you, but in the middle of it, it's a lot harder when you're dealing with flesh and blood. What was Bonhoeffer to do? This is in this dilemma. Do I I fight for the Nazis or not? Well, he was a connected person. He was international, had international connections with people here in America, and they they gave him a position at at a school, and so he was able to get out, um, to get out of of, of Germany and, and go to New York. But as his boat was nearing the harbor, um, he himself sensed regret that he had made the wrong decision. Now think about it. He was in the pressure cooker of Nazi Germany where he had like impossible choices. Not impossible, but difficult choices. And now he's breathing the free air here, relatively free air here in the United States, free from all the suffering and and, um, threat of death. But even before he gets here, he laments the fact that he left his people, that he left the confessing church, which is the church that opposed the Nazis, and you can sense it in what he writes. He writes, it is almost unbearable. Today, God's word says, you'd meditate each day on a portion of scripture, I am coming soon, that's Revelation 3.11, that's a way of saying, listen, The Lord's coming soon, so why should I grasp at life and live free in America when maybe I should be back with my people? So that was the meditation of the day. He says, there is is not time to lose, and here I am wasting days, perhaps weeks. In any case, it seems that at the moment, um, then I say to myself again, is it cowardice and weakness to run away here now? Supposed to be a W there. Will I ever be able to do any real significant work here, that is in the United States? Disquieting political news from Japan, if it becomes unsettled, now I am definitely going back to Germany. I cannot stay outside Germany by myself. This is quite clear. Uh, My whole life is still over there. In sense, freedom or suffering? Freedom or threat of death? And he wants to go back because he identifies with the German people in their plight. He identifies with the Christians who were in a very difficult place. And rather than abandon them, he decided he needed to go back. So in July 7th, um, 1939, he went back to Germany, back to the place where he was back in that pressure cooker again. And, you know, that's, that's one of the marks, I think, of, of a... Of a of a follower of Christ, as someone in whom the spirit of Christ lives, is that rather than just living for oneself and one's own freedom, you are willing to identify and suffer for, for your people. You're willing to identify and suffer with those who are under tyranny. And that's, a, that's exactly what he did. And, and uh, you know, one of the lessons that we, we learn from his life is simply that, being willing to identify and suffer for people under tyranny. And the struggle wasn't easy. It's not like he just decided. Um, you read through his journals. It took, like, I think, 26 days to finally, from getting to the United States to making the decision to go back, um, where he just was um, in anguish over the question. Not always easy to make a difficult decision, but he did. He, he made the choice between personal freedom or sacrifice, and he made the, ch- the choice of sacrifice. And it reminds me of 
of, um, of our Lord, right? The way that the Gospel of Luke tells the story of Jesus and of the Passion, it says, I believe it's Luke chapter 9, that he set his sight on Jerusalem. And the whole rest of the story in Luke talks about his journey there where he knew he was going to die. Where he was going to identify with, suffer, and die for people who were under the tyranny of sin and death. It's the Spirit of Christ. And one of the distinctive features of Christianity is a willingness to deny one's life, take up the cross, and follow Christ for the sake of others. And here we see in his own decision to go back to Germany just that. It reminds us of the Apostle Paul and what he said in Philippians chapter 3 when he talked about sharing in the sufferings of Christ and being made conformable to his death. That's part of Christianity is actually sharing in his sufferings for the sake of others. For Christians to look around them and, and, and see people who are in bondage or under the tyranny of, of the brokenness of life and sin and, and death and and to realize that we need to wade into it with them, connect, and to be agents of, of the gospel of freedom, that is, that is very much along the same lines as what Bonhoeffer did. We may never be in a place where we have that kind of a huge decision, hopefully not. So with things that are going on, you never know what's going to happen next month or next year. But that's the heart of Christ and the heart of Christ that worked in him, and I pray the heart of Christ that works in us is just a willingness to identify with and suffer for the sake of others, even just neighbors, and doing something about it. Well, that's one thing we take away from his life. Once Bonhoeffer, back to his life, once he was back in Germany, he against, again was in the dilemma. What is he going to do? Difficult choice to make. His brother, older brother, Claus, like Santa Claus, Claus Bonhoeffer, um, and his brother-in-law were deep in the conspiracy with, with German generals and other um, influential people to actually bring down Hitler. There were, there were attempts to bring him down. People were actively trying to execute the man. And at that point, um, when he got back to Germany, um, the only way he was involved in the conspiracy was really by way of emotional support and encouragement. He wasn't, like, committed to it um, directly until his, I believe it's his sister-in-law kind of got in his face and said, what are you afraid to get your hands dirty? Uh, up to this point, Bonhoeffer um, resisted it by way of confession. That is, he, he, he resisted it verbally in what he wrote and what he taught and what he spoke and letters and meetings that he, he opposed it verbally. But he came to the realization, because things were getting so bad and so dark and so deadly and so murderous, that he realized he had to do something. They realized they had to do something. In the words of, of his first biography and one of his closest friends, first biographer and one of his closest friends, um, Eberhard Bethke, um, this is how he, de he, he described the crossover between just resisting by way of confession by, to actual um, active resistance. He said, thus we were approaching the borderline between confession and resistance. And if we did not cross this border, that is to become active, actively anti-Nazi, um, our confession was going to be no better than cooperation with the criminals. And so it became clear where the problem lay for the confessing church. We were resisting by way of confession, but we were not confessing by way of resistance. 
realized they needed to do something. They needed to act. Now, whether or not you would, if you were in that situation, take part in a conspiracy to overthrow a governing official, maybe positive or negative. I mean, he was put in the right place at the right time with the right connections and right family members. It is true that Bonhoeffer was a pacifist. That is, from what I've read, I don't think he would have pulled the trigger or lit the fuse. But he did involve himself in a conspiracy to bring him down. And listen to this. When he got back, in order to do this and, and, and avoid draft, uh, he, he became, let's just call him a CIA agent for the Nazis. Um, the Abwehr, I believe that's how you say it. Um, which was, is basically the military intelligence of the Nazi wing. I guess they didn't have to, to say their, you know, this, this oath of unconditional allegiance. And he did so in a very deceptive way. If you can imagine yourself as a, as a, as a German agent, if, I mean, here's a pastor spy, if you can imagine such a combo. Like, I will be a secret agent for the Nazis, and I'm going to pretend to be a pastor Meanwhile, in pretending to be a pastor, I'm actually going to go out to the confessing church and be a pastor. <laughs> I'm going to act like a pastor to them, but I'm really going to be a pastor to the people. And then, on the flip side, I'm going to act like I'm a, a spy for the Nazis, but in fact, I'm going to gather intelligence against the Nazis. <laughs> so it's like multiple layers, as Metaxas shows the, his biographer. There's this like in layers of deception. A pastor acting like a pastor to be a pastor and an agent acting like an agent to actually gather information against who employs him. And that's how, how, we, how we involved himself. And, and there were a number of attempts to take this guy out. One of them was they planted a bomb in, his, in, in Hitler's plane. Only the bomb was a dud. Plane landed. Hitler got off the plane. Like, what the heck, Lord? Why couldn't you let the fuse light on that one. So they, they went round two, and they put a, another bomb inside of a trench coat, and a guy volunteered to be the, the suicide bomber. And um, it, it wasn't like today where, you know, you push a button, and boom, instantaneously there's bomb. No, they push the button, and it takes a little while for the fuse to go, and boom. So he had this trench coat, bombs inside the trench coat. In came Hitler. He hit the button, and the, the fuse started to do whatever it does to explode, and Hitler left the room. He's like, oh, my goodness, i got to get this jacket off. The guy lived to be 80 years old. Um, and some of you have seen the movie Valkyrie, another, yet another attempt to bring down um, Hitler, and none of them actually work. I'm, you might ask the question, which is a natural question, like the ethical question, is it right for a Christian person to be involved in an assassination conspiracy to take out an installed leader? I mean, it seems to me that um, it seems to go against much of the New Testament teaching on God's ordained authority and perhaps more importantly, the self-sacrificing nature of Christian love. That is, from my vantage point, it's, it's difficult to make a case for such action from the New Testament. But when you're forced into a situation where you are forced to make decisions. You have to wrestle with dilemmas. I'm not going to say it's a different story, but I will say you start reflecting more deeply on Scripture and its nuances. 
Here's a little taste of how, how Bonhoeffer thought. Um, taken from his own book on ethics, his magnum opus. And I want you to uh, see if you get this. It took me, I don't know how many times I read this before I could figure it out. Where he said, what is worse than doing evil is being evil. It is worse for a liar to tell the truth than of a lover of truth to lie. It is worse when a misanthropist, someone who hates humanity, practices brotherly love than when a, uh, a philanthropist gives way to hatred. Better than truth in the mouth of a liar is the lie. Soak in that for just a second. Do you know what he's talking about? Or he's just like, what in the world? Like I said, I had to read that over and over again and try and think through situations to what I think is getting what he meant. Or maybe an illustration will help you. Most of you are familiar with the, the story of Corrie ten Boom, right? She hid Jewish people and saved them from the Nazis. And when the Gestapo would come to her door, as they did, knock on the door, they would ask, do you have Jews here in this house? Not juice, but Jews in this house. And the question the question is, what do you do in that situation? Jesus told me, let my yea be yea and my nay be nay. Let my yes be yes and my no be no. So is it a lie to say no? And if I tell the truth, yes, I do. I have Jewish people living in the back behind a, behind a false wall. Then she has just sacrificed the life of Jewish people. What do you do in that situation? And I, I, I think that's what he's getting. Is it better than truth in the mouth of a liar, a Gestapo agent who has murderous intent, than a willingness to say, nope, no Jews here. That there is competing, if you will, commands. One is yep, your yes be yes and your no be no, but then there's the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you... How do you love the Jewish people? And does the person who's asking the question with murderous intent deserve the answer? That's, that's, a, that's a moral quandary. I don't know how you would answer Gestapo if they came to your house and you were hiding people. I would say no. And that's part of, just to kind of give, again, take it another layer down, is, is Throughout his writings, he, has, he had an issue with people who create a moral rule disconnected, like a bear, he called it bear principles, that were disconnected from God's purpose in those principles, or those principles connected to a person whose heart knew and was connected to the Lord. That is, that is you can't just create bare principles outside of a knowledge of God, the purpose of God for those principles, the idea of faith, hope, and love. And I was thinking about this and realized Jesus had the same issue when he came to, came to his own. Like one of the things the Pharisees did is they loved to create bare principles, disconnected from the purpose of God, disconnected from the love of God and how God intended that principle to work. For example, the Sabbath. At one point, Jesus says, listen, 
Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. You've taken something that was a gift and you've made it into a prison. And that kind of picking principles and making them bare without the connection to God's intent or, or, or God's uh, presence um, is itself uh, dangerous. So that, that's, that kind of gives you an idea of, 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 of how he thinks. And it's true. <laughs> the opening chapters of his book tells us why ethics is wrong in terms of a philosophical category because it just takes us back to the Garden of Eden, the knowledge of good and evil. And at the end of the day, what we end up doing is we just simply abstract these principles detached from God's purpose and God's presence, God's love, and God's gospel. So I, there's something to be said for wrestling through these things, but that gives you an idea of how he was wrestling through and why he could do what he did. He could pretend to be a pastor and really be a pastor because, you know, he believed in his heart. It was driven by truth and by love for the German people. So if there was a sense in which someone could look at him and say, wow, you, you deceived the, the, the Nazis, he'd say, yeah, I did. <laughs> now, some might say, well, that's, that's uh, just another form of um, situation ethics. But he takes it pretty deep. And um, it's, I think, at least very worthy of consideration. And, and, um, and it, part of the reason, too, why he was willing to do this, and, and this is part of the biggest, one of the biggest challenges I've uh, taken from his life, is that he recognized that people tend to be so fearful, Christians in particular, of making a mistake, that they fail to act. That is, and I quote Metaxas again, Bonhoeffer knew that to live in fear of incurring guilt was itself a sin. God wanted his beloved children to operate out of a freedom and joy to do what was right and good, not out of fear of making a mistake. To live in fear and guilt was to be religious, quote unquote, that's living by those bare principles, in the pejorative sense that Bonhoeffer so often talked and preached about. He knew that to act freely could mean inadvertently doing wrong and incurring guilt. In fact, he felt that living this way meant that it was impossible to avoid incurring guilt, but if one wished to live responsibly and fully, one would be willing to do so. I'm so afraid of making a mistake. You don't do anything. So afraid of committing a sin that you don't do anything. And you know, it's like he addressed two people in his life. There were people who, German people who were living in, German Lutheran Christians who were living in a sense of inertia, probably just living in sin. And he says, listen, you don't get grace. That's cheap grace. It's not expensive, costly grace. And if you got costly grace, you would move. But the other side of the, to that is like, okay, it's costly. I'm afraid to sin, so I shouldn't do anything. You think, Corey Tambu, do you have Jewish people living in this house? No, I don't. You know what? I don't think the Lord at the end of the day, at the end of the age, is going to stand say, you know what? I'm not going to give you a mansion because you told a Nazi that there weren't Jews living in the house. Rather, live boldly, recognizing that you are going to make mistakes. 
We are sinful people. We will continue to sin. Now, it's not an excuse to sin. You could twist this wildly to say, let us sin that grace may abound. Or use it to say, let's not be circumspect or sober or careful in our living or our choices. And that's not what, what he means. There are times when things are not black and white and we live in the gray. He's saying, follow Christ. Love people. You're going to screw up along the way. That's okay. That's what it means to live boldly and confidently in the justifying work of the cross. You know how freeing that is? If to, to say, okay, like I'm, I'm going to go for this. doesn't mean I'm not going to be circumspect and so forth, but I'm going for this because I trust that Christ has covered my sin. All past, present, future are gone, and when I do make a mistake, I will confess it, but I'm going to live boldly and freely. That's, that's, that's a powerful truth. And he was basically uh, quoting or echoing Luther from four centuries before Martin Luther when he said, sin boldly. (laughs) Can you believe Luther said that? Sin boldly. He didn't mean just go out and sin however you want. He meant the same thing that was just said. For Luther, sin boldly could only be this very last refuge, the consolation of one whose attempts to follow Christ had taught him that he can never become sinless. Who in his fear of sin despairs of the grace of God? That's a, a, po- a potent statement. Like, moved more by fear of sinning or more by the grace of God? That's part of where his boldness comes from. And again, one of the lessons I think we can draw. Um, that if we're too fearful of making any mistakes, we will fail to act boldly and courageously for Christ. Fear paralyzes. Confidence and grace gives courage. I hope that came out clearly and someone's not going to twist what I just, or what was just said um, because someone very well could. To close out his, his life, back to it. By the way, I, do you feel at all paralyzed by fear? Making a mistake, doing something wrong, so much so that you fail to act? Question. For his involvement in the conspiracy, Bonhoeffer was arrested on on April 5th, 1943, by the Gestapo. He took his Bible, went with him, went out to the car, and he never came back home again. To make matters worse, he had just gotten engaged three weeks, three months before. (laughs) I think he was, what, 37, 38 years old when he got engaged. He's been waiting a long time, right? Long time for a wife. Three months in, he gets put in, in prison. And here's how he describes his, his, um, his experience in prison. He says, I was taken to the most isolated cell on the top floor. A notice prohibiting all access without special permission was put outside it. I was told that, uh, that all my correspondence would be stopped until further notice and that, unlike the, the other prisoners, I should not be allowed half an hour a day, not be allowed half an hour a day in the open air, although according to the prison rules, I was entitled to it. I received neither newspapers nor anything to smoke. (laughs) It was fashionable to smoke back then, not like today. After 48 hours, my Bible was returned to me. So he's describing the the physical deprivation of, of prison life, all of it because he boldly pursued what he believed Christ's call in his life was. Not only were there the physical deprivations outside, but there was the anguish of his heart of realizing that the one, the, 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 the fiancé that he loved, um, he would probably never marry. There's this, uh, there's this thin little book called Voices in the Night, Prison Poems by 
by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and some of them are just heart-wrenching when you realize what he, how he feels you know, in prison, separated. You realize he has a, he's like emotional pain. And part of one of those, uh, entitled Loss, this is a poem from prison, and he's, this is right after Maria, his, uh, his bride-to-be, leaves the prison after, after visitation hours. This is what he writes. He says, you walk away, love's happiness and sore pain. What name shall I give you? Stress, life, bliss, part of myself, my heart, times past, all gone? The door slams shut. I hear your footsteps slowly die away. What is left when you are gone? Joy, anguish, longing. I know only this. You go away, all is gone. Oh, man, that breaks my heart. I can't imagine my wife leaving and just wondering. (laughs) Prison, loss. But here's the thing, and this is what I want you to notice, that in the midst of this, he continued to show, he continued to act the part of a pastor and as a Christian, showing compassion to those around him. One of those people wrote this. He says, one of the prisoners says, he always cheered me up and comforted me. He never tired of repeating that, only, that the only fight which is lost is that which we give up. That's true. Many little notes he slipped into my hands on which he had written biblical words of comfort and hope. Even the prison guards saw such compassion in him for other prisoners that they allowed him to visit um, the sick and the infirm in the infirmary. Um, he would give of his own personal money to help legal fees of other prisoners. Um, he would take confession for people, help, pro- um, help with their problems. Some people just wanted to be near him. Um, he did services in prison. Like I said, he's just constantly showing compassion in this difficult state. And, and that, too, is, is, is quite a, um, an example to us, that even in the face of suffering and death, the compassion of Christ is lived. It, it is really easy to say, woe is me. I liked what Jeannie said on the, on the video. It's like, you can say, woe is me because I'm a, I'm a widow. And no doubt it hurts as prison hurts. But her willingness to say, I look around and see that others are in need and I help. And rather than live in a woe is me mentality, to recognize there are opportunities all around you in the place God has you, even if it's in prison, to actually be a minister of Christ and to minister to the needs of people. And that's what he did. Regardless of your circumstance, Christian, we are to have our eyes open, not just looking inwardly at our own pain or our own circumstance, but to look outwardly and see that there are people all around us um, in pain and that Christ has called us. Yeah, right? That's what Jesus did on the way to the cross. He was caring about everybody else but himself, caring about his mom, cared about the criminal on the cross, cared about the people who were in front of him, um, for whom he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that his concern is for others, even in his dying day. And you see that same spirit in the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. On April 8th, 1945, the day after Easter, in the prison of Flossenburg, he went to a number of different prisons. Um, he was asked to do a service, and so he did. A bunch of prisoner, prisoners gathered around. This is April 9th, and he read a portion of Isaiah 53, which is all about the cross, the one who was crushed to take away our sins, and he prayed. And after his prayer, the doors opened up, 
And the prison guards came in and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. And everybody knew what that meant. That was April 8th. The next day, April 9th, um, he was hanged. Only I want to I I read a portion from a doctor who was at the camp who saw Bonhoeffer give his life. And I believe the doctor of this camp was a Nazi. He wrote, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison guard garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God, his God, sense of depersonalization. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God had his, heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Like I said, I believe this is the testimony of of a Nazi regarding the way in which pastor, theologian, spy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer went to his death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not a perfect man, nor was his theology perfect. On a number of points, we may disagree and do disagree, that is, evangelical Christians in general. But he is, notwithstanding, um, a living, dying example of a man in whom the Spirit of Christ lived, and who displayed a heart, the boldness, and the devotion of our crucified King. And we have his words to this day. In large measure, I believe, because his life was taken. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Father, I thank you for um, this life. Let's pray. For your people, your disciples in this time, gracious God, move in grace and act in grace. Enable us to have the courage and boldness to, to be who you've called us to be, to speak what you've called us to speak, to, to show compassion to those you've called us to show compassion to, to self-sacrifice in the way that Christ has self-sacrificed for us. The world in which we live, Lord, needs to see Christians who are radically devoted to the cross. And I pray that we would be just such Christians. Make it so, Lord, by your grace and by your power, apart from which we can't do anything. It's in the name of Jesus, our crucified and risen King, we pray. Amen.